Keeley Companies was started almost 50 years ago by the one and only Larry Keeley. What started as a small family-owned paving company in St. Louis has grown to a nationally known full-service construction, development, and restoration partner. Larry the Legend, as he is affectionately known, has been a part of this growth every step of the way and continues to provide guidance as his son, Rusty, my buddy, drives their vision and achieves results on purpose. His unwavering foundation of a family culture with a focus on people has gotten Keeley Companies to where they are today, and their journey is truly just beginning. To learn more about Larry the Legend and Keeley Companies, check them out at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. One of the challenges I think most of us, and I would say all of us struggle with, is feeling worthy. It's feeling like we belong. It's feeling like we're whole. It's feeling like the mistakes that we've made in the past, or for many of us, the mistakes we're currently making in the present, are somehow cutting us short from living a better life going forward into the future. Because we all have moments of trauma and abuse and childhood wounds or toxic relationships that have broken us. And yet, here's the good news, and yet our past brokenness does not have to stand in the way of living a life with hope, with joy, with peace, and with vitality. In sharing her story, it's going to be our guest that I'm referring to, on processing her brokenness, Tony Collier is going to remind each of us of the bright light that stands on the other side of healing as we move forward from shame and suffering into wholeness and possibility. You're going to love the conversation that I'm about to have with a speaker and with an author, with the leader of Broken Cran Still Color Ministry, because Tony wants others to not only face their demons, but to quash the illusion that our brokenness must always negatively define us. In fact, today she may even remind us that Broken Crayons Still Color, get ready for it. So my friends, without further ado, pull your seat a little bit closer to that podcast stand, grab your Live Inspired journal, uncork that pen, grab a big sip of coffee or whatever you're sipping from today and get ready to Live Inspired as I bring on my friend, soon to be yours, her name is Tony Collier. Tony, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Hey man, how are you doing? I'm feeling so good to be here. <laughs> hey man, this, this man over here is doing awesome. I'm grateful that you're taking time. I know you're on a busy, yeah. busy tour right now. When you bump into somebody in an airport and they say, Tony Collier, hmm, <laughs> tell me about you. How do you respond to that? Ooh, I always start with, I'm a little wild and a little crazy. And I just want to put that out on the forefront so that I don't shock nobody, you know? I, I love starting with that though, because it is who I am. I love to be out of the box. I love to be loud. I love to be authentically who I am. And I think I start with that too, because there was a time in my life where I didn't, I wasn't comfortable with that. I wasn't comfortable with being authentically myself, but now I'm just like, it is what it is, guys. This is what you're going to get out here. You know, I'm originally from Houston, Texas, best state in the world. Woo! Um, but I live now in Atlanta, Georgia 
Georgia with my husband, Sam. He's a huge part of my redemption story. And I, we've got a little eight-year-old strong-willed blessing. Okay. We call her that because she's a little wild. It makes us feel better about it. And I just had a sweet little baby. I got a four month old little boy and I get to go around the world kind of being like a hope coach. I'm like the cheerleader on the sidelines of your life, cheering you on saying you can get through the hard thing. And I'm writing about it, talking about it, podcasting about it. It sounds like full-time work. Yeah. You know, no big deal. No big deal. So I, I want to go through, you mentioned my husband, Sam, he's part of my redemption story. So if there yeah. is a redemption story, it means there's a story before the book and before the oh. podcast, before the kids and before Atlanta. Yeah. So I'm going to back all the way up to what you've described as the finest state in the nation, Texas. we got a whole lot of Texas listeners in the podcast. So yes. shout out to my friends down there, the Lone Star State, my sister Come being on. one of them. My childhood was up in Missouri and it included an incredible mother a phenomenal father, a safe community, almost too much love, mm. safety everywhere, support everywhere, appropriate love everywhere. Yours was a little different. So I'm going to have you just kind of slow play this thing. I'd like you first to begin talking about your dad. What was your dad like growing uh-huh. up? It's unfortunate and it's really hard to speak about too in this moment because my dad and I have just healed and come together in such a beautiful way. Uh, But my dad was really verbally abusive growing up. He kind of, you know, slipped into the same patterns as his dad did. All he knew was spanking, yelling, screaming. That's just it. He just didn't express himself. He didn't express love. He didn't express, you know, being proud of us. And so he was very distant. He worked a whole bunch real hard. My mom was disabled growing up. He was just absent. You know, it's like having a father in the house. That's not really in the house, but he worked hard and he protected us in that way financially. Um, It just was super hard emotionally, you know? So I know, of course, not only about your dad, but about your mother, who you whispered, now we're going to roar. Before she became disabled, what was your mother like? Gosh, she was super fun. The wild and crazy part of Tony, that came from her. Uh, One of my most favorite things about my mom before she got sick is that she did the best impersonations, like of my aunts and uncles, of my cousins, of like famous people. She just did the best impersonations. I think that was one of the things that I missed about her the most when she had a stroke and some seizures and you know, just all sorts of things that happened to her, but she's so fun. And she's such a giver too. She loves gifts. That's like one of the things that I also got. I love uh, generosity. And I got that from her. Your mother's stroke. Is that when you're about eight years old, she has that stroke. She had a massive stroke at eight. A couple years after that, she had three mini strokes, um, lost a, lost the entire feeling of her left side. So she was paralyzed for a little while. And then it was crazy because everything just started healing. It was kind of nutso a little bit, but she had a blood clot in her left leg. She lost her large intestine. She had to have a hip replacement and carpal tunnel surgery. I mean, she she had a lot going on. We call her the bionicle woman. Well, she had a good driver. That's I, I understand that driving Miss Daisy, that Morgan Freeman wasn't uh, available. So your mother leaned into her young daughter. It's a shocking story. Your whole story is relatively shocking. Yeah. One of the most surprising aspects, though, is how young you were when you were driving mom to these appointments. Yeah. Talk about that. You know, there was something called a hardship license that you could get to help out um, as a, you know, teen, preteen. So at 12 and 13, I was driving my mom around and getting her to doctor's appointments. And we had a little Mitsubishi Eclipse. And so I had to learn how to drive a stick real, real young. My dad had a couple of trucks. That was a stick shift as well. And so it's interesting because 
when you're in a story like that, it's not as shocking. And when people say it back to you and they're like, I can't believe it. Right. It's really just like the realization that, oh man, I, I should have been on the playground, but instead I was on the road, you know, driving my mom. And that, that piece of being a caretaker at an early age and longing wow. for love at an early age and having a dad who's not around at an early age is yeah. going to influence the next chapter of your life. Mm. So I'm not the first to bring this up. You, uh, you've spoken on it. You preached on it. You've written about it. And I'd like you to, to unpack it with us a little bit. I know uh, your life is going to change in a mighty way at around 12, 13, and, yeah. and then going forward for a while. So take us forward from there. What were you looking for that you did not find? Mm. I think it was two things. I think I was looking for safety and protection. And then I think I was looking for validation. The safety and pr protection part came because, I mean, when, you know, trauma enters into your story and I mean, you have to understand, like my dad was always gone working. My, my mom was incapacitated in so many ways. And so there was not a lot of protection. So sexual manipulation and abuse from family members is in my story. Um, losing my virginity at 13 to a much older guy, smoking and drinking and popping drugs and, um, and eating disorders in my story as well. All of that really surfaced because I really didn't have anyone to steer me in the right direction. I really didn't have anyone to give me protection and nurturing and kindness as a, a child and a preteen would have. Then the second one was validation. I was longing for my dad to be proud of me. I was longing for someone to say, I see you and I see you working hard to, you know, be captain of the cheerleading team and in the drama club, debate team, program council. I see you in all these organizations because you're just working for someone to validate that you're doing the best that you can. And that developed in me, you know, a performer's heart. Like I, I want to show up. It manifested into people pleasing. And my counselor calls it being a chameleon, kind of being all things for other people, even if it hurts me or even if it takes away my authenticity. And so, yeah, I was longing for those two things for sure. In reading through your story, it amazes me how many mistakes you made along the way. God, yeah and how you continue to progress your way through life. Like mm -hmm. typically, you know, you, you just let out a rap sheet and then moved on like real quickly, like not a big deal. This happened at 13 yeah. and 14 alcohol and, and marijuana making poor decisions with older guys, like yeah. up down mm. and you're performing and you're cheerleading and you're graduating early and all these other, other things. So I'm going to, I'm going to slow play just a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, what was it? that you think not brought you to the point where you're making all kinds of bad decisions, but ultimately allowed you to move past those bad decisions. Yeah. You know, I think as children and even teens and even in our early, you know, twenties, I think we numb to survive. I think we just kind of do what we need to do to press our way through. And, and I think for me, I was obviously numbing through, you know, alcohol, drugs, boys, attention, all those things. But when I look back on my story, it's, it's shocking almost that I even pressed through those things. And I always battle with this in counseling. I'm saying, how did I survive? Like, why didn't I turn to anyone and say, Hey, please help me. Like, I want to live a better life. And my counselor always says, you know, it is a privilege to be safe. It's a privilege to be able to have the space to grieve and you didn't get that privilege until you were 24, 25 years old and you got in a safe environment. So you transit, you got a divorce and you transitioned out of that. When you are in it, you're just surviving. You don't have the privilege to slow down and say, I'm going to kick my feet up today and go to a counseling session. I'm going to sit down with a, you know, a beautiful group of people and 
process all my feelings out in my safe community. You don't have that. And so I think I was just surviving and numbing and doing the best that I could while kind of living this double life. Like all my friends were so shocked when they found out that all of this was going on because on paper as captain of the cheerleading team and, you know, and at the thespian society and let patches on my letterman jacket, it looked like I was doing great, but I was just hiding you know, it's shame. It's saying, I can't really tell people who I really am and what I'm really battling through because then they'll leave me. And so I think I was also hiding. Did you know that back then that you were self-medicating, that you were hiding, that you were were wearing this mask that wasn't authentically yours? No, I didn't even know the phrase self-medicating, right? Like you don't know that you just kind of access what you access, do what you can. You're influenced by people. I have, you know, friends, older friends in my life, older guys in my life saying, this is the way do this drug, try this thing, et cetera, et cetera. And I had no idea that that was even toxic. I just thought it was a part of life. 16, you graduate high school. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah, driving was impressive. This is equally impressive. And there was some of the influences outside of school. So yeah. you graduated at 16. And, and then what were you going to do next? You know, anytime someone hears that I graduated high school at 16 and even college at 19, um, they're always like, oh, you just must have been a genius. And I was like, yeah, maybe on paper, but I had no street sense. Because the truth is, I graduated high school at 16. Yes, obviously, because I was advanced educationally, but I graduated. My purpose was so that I could be with a guy that was much older. He was in college already. I was ready to get out of school and I was ready to just go live my life. I was like, I'm an adult. Okay. I've been taking care of my mom. No one can parent me. And there was a lot of mistrust in parenting at that point. I really rebelled at 13 years old and started stealing my parents' car, sneaking out of the house to be with boys. And so by 16, I was like, I've got a master plan. I am getting out of school so I can go live my life. Then where did you, where'd you live your life? Where'd you go to school? Huntsville, Texas. I went to Sam Houston State University. And the only reason why I chose it was because there was a guy there that I really liked and I was into. And I was like, yep, I'm going there. And then I read somewhere that you had planned on going to law school. Yeah. Oh, I had a master plan. Okay. I was going to go to college, graduate in three years. Cause I was going to go year round throughout the summer. Then I was going to go to law school. And by the age of 25, I would have been a practicing lawyer. It was going to be amazing. Well, I took all my little law school money. I was even in a pre-law fraternity and spent it on moving me and a guy that I had met three months prior from Texas to Georgia. You, you're so brilliant. You, you mentioned a moment ago, smart on paper, street, street dumb though. <laughs> Why are you making these decisions? Why is this girl who's graduating and rocking in life is ahead of her and she's got the master plan yeah. moving some dude who she, she's known three months and his box of old sweatshirts to Atlanta. <laughs> what was the goal there? John, I don't think there was a goal. I think what there was is, is a gaping hole. I mean, it. this is such a testament to things can look so shiny. We post our Instagram reels and our highlight reels of our life. And it's really just a bottomless pit. My counselor says it all the time. I had this bucket and there was so much being filled in it, good and bad, but it was just falling out of the bottom. There was no bottom there. And I think what was happening is that I just wanted to be seen and known and loved. And I was doing that thinking that accolades would get me that. And when accolades wouldn't do it, then poor decisions at least made me feel good, at least made the anxiety go away and the depression go away. And so I was just looking to be seen and loved, which is just so sad, okay? But it's true. 
maybe sad, maybe true, but certainly common. And you, yeah. you recognize the more you share the story, how common this thing is. You found this ability to be seen and loved. You eventually get married. What, what happened with your first marriage? Oh man. So I'm dating this guy, living my best life. We moved to Georgia. I pay for everything to get us out here. It's going real good at first. I've got, um, I'm actually working for Edward Jones at 20 years old, going to get my series six and seven test. I mean, all the things I'm like, I'm going to crush it. I'm going to be a financial advisor. And and it turned real bad real fast. There was jealousy in the marriage of me having a job and him not having a job. And then yelling started and doors ripped off the hinges started and holes punched in the walls. And I mean, so much verbal abuse. And then I just felt ashamed. Mm. I There was no way that I could tell my mom and dad that I had moved myself out from Texas. I'm, I'm an adult now and I've gotten with this guy and, and it's crumbling. I couldn't admit that to my parents. I couldn't admit it to my friends that everybody had gleaned from my story of being 19 and moving across the country. And I just was ashamed. And so I was hiding and fighting and it was really, really bad. That was really bad. What began to change that story from being in the shadows and yeah. embarrassed and covered up and in shambles yeah. to the eventual redemption story that you live today? What, what yeah. changed in your life as the doors are off the hinges and holes are in the drywall and you're yeah. in the corner crying? Mm, two things. I had a daughter and I saw fear in her eyes for the first time and I put my foot down. And the second thing was I started creeping my way into safe, healthy community. And what had happened was as I started, and I mean, we say this all the time, it's so cliche, people probably roll their eyes listening to this, but you know, you are who you hang around and your community is so important and the people you surround yourself with define your future in so many ways. But I think the other thing that healthy community does is it starts to expose your weaknesses. It also starts to expose the places that you need healing in. And I started to get around people who were in counseling who were going to healthy churches and doing small group with other people, doing life with healthy people. And then I started to realize that I had become the toxic person that I needed so much saving from throughout my whole life. And what had happened is those behaviors leaked on me, bitterness set in, um, the effects of trauma and pain and abuse and all the things started to manifest and bubble up. And I needed to go and get healed. And, and I started just that. And it, then it didn't get better. <laughs> Because healing ain't easy, okay? It's incredibly hard and painful. You uh, said a lot there. So I'm going to have to slow play us forward to pull out yeah. some of the ideas and make sure yeah. we can implement them in our own lives. You talked about community. Yeah. You had community growing up. You had a parent. You had a, a dad and a mom. You had friends in high school and college. And yet yeah. that wasn't the right community. Yeah. So talk about the difference between a toxic community and a healthy life-giving one. And, and then give us some ideas on how regardless of where our listeners are tuning in from or what their faith background might be or what their age might be or their background in life might be or their mistakes might be, how they can begin surrounding themselves with life-giving people. Yeah, that's so good, John. You know, one of the things that I had to realize first before finding really great community was I really had to look in the mirror and figure out if I was a friend that I would want and the truth is I was feisty. I was, I had my guards up because I had so much, you know, so much hatred and abuse thrown at me and I wasn't a good friend. And so I think the first part of be of finding healthy community was to be a healthy person. 
The second thing that I had to identify was who in my life drifts me towards unhealth, toxicity, bad behavior, and who in my life is pulling me forward towards hope. And there was a lot of that. I mean, there was even times in my life where I couldn't be alone with my own brother because we would do drugs together. I mean, it just it was what it was. And so I really had to identify those people. And I, I didn't just kick them out of my life. I transitioned them to safer spaces for me as I was healing. To, to spaces that didn't impact me as much so that I could find the strength that I needed to be a healthier person. And then after that, I started looking for a healthy community and I started to put them in, you know, in the book, I talk about circles, um, these different circles, there's intimate circles, and then there's outer layer circles. And you have to figure out where people go in your life so that they don't, you know, either step over the boundaries that you've set, or they don't, you know, trip you back into bad behaviors and, I spent a lot years, years doing that, figuring it out. Who's in my inner, intimate circle, my innermost circles, who's in the outer circle? How do I have conversations with them about it and set really good boundaries? Who's somebody helping you navigate this? This is complicated work, yeah. requires a ton of intentionality and maturity to get it done right and well. Yeah. Was there one person who was putting their arm around you and walking you through the circles and the toxicity and, and looking in the mirror and being honest and making sure you kindly but assertively push people away who are unhealthy in your life so that you can yeah, make absolutely do all this so i believe in mentors and i believe in sponsors um interestingly enough my now husband sam was one of those mentors one of those people that said hey number one like who are these people who are these people over here like navigating it he paid for a big chunk of my counseling when we were first dating because i was dirt poor with a little girl as a single mom and he really had also, I mean, you know, I don't know where you fall on the Enneagram, but I'm a three on the Enneagram achiever. I'm trying to crush it every single day. My husband's an eight. He's super direct, very challenging. And so he kind of gave me the grit to stand up to people and to have these hard conversations where I was just like, no, 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 I'm a people pleaser. Like, I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. They'll leave me. And so he was super big, but also meant like other mentors. I have mentors in different spaces and sponsors in different spaces. And I just coined those terms as, you know, a mentor is someone that has the time and the capacity to spend actual time with you, to walk with you. But a sponsor sometimes is just someone that opens a door for you, that points you to a resource that connects you to someone. And I've had a lot of those. I, I invested in myself to kind of map out my life in these different ways for community. Let's talk about the power of gratitude. Mm. And then I want to talk about prayer. And then I want to talk about intentionality and then community. And then, then we'll wrap up. Yeah. Talk about gratitude first. I know you are big into practicing gratitude. Why does it matter? I think it matters. I mean, first of all, there are so many psychological like truths and helps with gratitude. I mean, there's studies out there that says that if we start to produce gratitude or practice gratitude daily to start to just be grateful for the little things like our house and our lights and the food that we have and the, the shirt that we're wearing, those little small things that our brain starts to release good endorphins that allow us to at least to experience life well. Health, I mean, stress lessens in a major way. I mean, all the different things. I think it's important to me, however, because... I mean, again, my story's got a whole bunch of pain. And when I practice gratitude, it allows me to position myself to live a life on the offense, not the defense. If I've already got built up in my you know, reservoir of health, 
the gratitude for, you know, God redeeming my story in so many different ways, having a daughter that's healthy mentally and emotionally after everything that she's experienced, being able to have kids again. I mean, all these different things that I'm thanking God for daily and just being grateful for daily when hard times come because shoot, they come, right? There's already a foundation that I can rely on. There's already a reserve that I can go back to. Gratitude for me is about living a life on the offense, not the defense. And it's been such a beautiful thing. And my daughter has a little gratitude jar. Like we're big on gratitude in this household. My daughter has a gratitude jar. I also think it's important to be exposed. This is why it's so important, I think, for generosity and for serving and going out in the community. You know, my daughter, she she made me smile one day, but also like scratch my head a little bit. I, I was like, you really just need to be grateful. We got her something and she was like, I don't want this color. I want this color. And I was like, you need to be grateful. And I realized well, she doesn't really have a comparison. And she's fortunately for her, she's got a mom that clawed her way out of poverty and abuse and all these things and, and turned our whole life around. And so she's just got everything that she freaking needs and wants. And so she doesn't really know the valleys. And so starting to expose her to that, I think helps not for a pain comparison, but to understand where gratitude really comes from. I think it comes from the valleys. You mentioned through your work, through your words, through your speaking quite a bit around your faith. Yeah. How has your faith helped you not only fill the hole, yeah. but move through shame? Yeah. Well, I've said this before, you know, and I write about it in the book. There's a difference between shame and guilt. The truth is like, we're all guilty. We're going to pop off. We're going to maybe raise our voices. We're going to do something wrong, you know? Well, guilt says that I've done something bad, but shame says I am bad. And that's an identity attacker. And you can recover from things that you've done, but it's really difficult to live a full life when you constantly have to hide who you are because of shame. And so I think what's been super helpful is being able to look shame in the eye and say, well, number one, I've got community who's affirming me. And who's saying, Tony, I know everything you've done, sweet girl. I know all that you've been through, what you were addicted to, what you still battle with, but you're still worthy of love and belonging. And so it helps, right, to have people that bring you out of shame. But I also think that we've got to get to a place where we really are relying on something that's bigger than us. And that's how my faith comes into it. Like, I believe in counseling. I'm going to believe in all the resources in the world. I've got a replenishment cycle that I do. We can talk about that later. But those are all resources. For me, I need a source that's bigger than me because I'm freaking nuts, okay? Like, it just is what it is. I'm a little wild. I'm about three drinks away from skinny dipping and losing everything. You know what I'm saying? Like, it just is what it is. I need something that keeps me grounded. I need guardrails. And for me, it's been my faith. It's been answering and surrendering to someone that's greater than me because surrendering to myself is just the wrong way to go. Okay. I am not good enough. He's just better at it than me, you know? So I think many of us can say those words and some of us might even believe those words. How do you remain active in and growing in those words mm. and growing in your faith and growing, growing in relationship with God? How do you yeah. do it? Yeah, there was a time when I was a fan of God, not a follower. It's just the truth. It was like, I go on Sundays, lift my little hands up, live my best life, belt out all these dang worship songs. And Monday through Saturday was just trash. Okay. It was horrible. And I realized what had happened was I was standing, you know, on the sidelines of faith of this whole God thing. I was sitting in the bleachers saying, oh, 
like that. Like, that's cool. Like, all right, this whole God thing. But I didn't know him for myself. And I think it's it's like with any relationship. If you want your marriage to thrive, if you want your friendships to thrive, it's about building intimacy. And intimacy equates to closeness, compassion, empathy, being known, being seen, withness. And so I think the way that I keep this faith up is that I'm with God. And I had to lay down worshiping and serving a pastor and trade it out for worshiping a savior who's just better, you know? And that just meant consistency, showing up, being with God as I would any relationship. Well, you're in a relationship with, with God and with a man you've mentioned a couple of times. So we might as well talk about him. His name is Sam. Sam knows you, mm. but before someone knows you and accepts you, you've got to take this wild risk of saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell them about me. Woo. I'm just curious. There was a time where he saw this beautiful woman in front of him, but didn't really know you. That's right. What was it like for you to say, hey, man, before uh, before we go a step farther, you've got to know about the full me, the, the, the me that came down to Atlanta, the me that made some mistakes in college, the me that started way young, the me that longed for a father and didn't find it, the me that mm, all these things that happened. Mm-hmm. What was it like for you to uh, sit across or sit next to Sam and be yeah. real with him? You know, unfortunately for sweet Sam, uh, that did not happen. It was not a one conversation. Here's all of me. It was a painful, excruciating, slow drip of my story. I was hiding even in my relationship with Sam. I got with him and yeah, he saw this well put together, beautiful woman, as he would say, and (laughs) with a daughter, you know, with a daughter. I'm like, I'm not tooting my own horn here, guys. Um, But but all of it just leaked out. I mean, it was like an onion for him. And he is the type of guy that's like, I want to build trust. Let's put it all out super direct. And I wasn't giving him that because I was so afraid if he knew everything he'd leave. Well, that made marriage really hard. That made being together really hard. We transitioned into marriage and it really damaged him in so many ways because I mean every corner he turned there'd be something else well I can't do this I can't say that I can't have these hard conversations because I have this in my past and he's like whoa one whoa what was that like I, I didn't know that was in your past he was like ah surprise and so it was really hard I think the moment that I finally just dropped my shoulders realized that he would be there no matter what is when everything started to grow because when you can name it, you can heal it. Mm-hmm. And the minute I felt the freedom and the safety to start naming it with Sam, I felt the freedom and the safety to start naming it with a counselor, honestly, to myself, you know, there's some things that we don't even want to admit to ourselves. And our marriage started to finally blossom because I started to get the help that I really needed. How has that changed the way you, you not only serve as a spouse and mm-hmm. uh, as a mother, but as a human being, how do you walk out of the house differently because you are liberated? Oh man, I think it's the best thing that I could have ever done. One, because, you know, there's a difference between vulnerability and transparency. I can be vulnerable with anyone. You're going to get Tony whether you like it or not, honey. Okay. But transparency is about really diving into the depths of who we are, those innermost beings. And not everyone deserves that. Not everyone can hold that with me. But when I walk out of the house and I can be transparent, parent in really safe spaces, it gives me more of the power to show up often authentically in spaces like social media and on stages and all the things. I think it's been beautiful because 
I'm not, you know, a people pleaser anymore. I, I get to show up on my time. My audience doesn't own me. My followers don't own me. I'll show up when I want to, how I want to, and in safe ways and in healthy ways. And, and so I think today it's just, I'm experiencing a, a more full life, a more relaxed life, a, a life that has meaning and purpose behind it. And it's really beautiful. Do broken crayons still color? Yes or no? Uh, absolutely, John. One color. of the beautiful stories you share so often is, uh, is where you learned the power of even a broken crayon. Well, the story is just my daughter. I gave her a 64 box of crayons and she just completely ruined them, but was still just coloring away and living her best life. And I was scrolling on Instagram that night and I just so happened to stumble upon a graphic that said broken crayons still color. It was profound to me. I think for so many reasons, when, again, you have a hard childhood like me, those small little, you know, things like coloring, like crayons, it just like instills on wonder back in your life. And so for me, I think it defined me in so many ways. I really believe that my brokenness discounted me from a hopeful future. I really did. There was just too much that I'd done. There's too much that I'd been through. And then I was in ministry. And let me just tell you, ministry church people. I mean, they're, they could just be real unkind with your brokenness. They can be, well, you're discounted. It's over. You can't do anything else anymore in the church. Da, 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 even if you feel like you're called to it, this idea that broken crayons still color didn't just apply to me as a mother, um, as a wife, as a friend, but it also applied to my vocational ministry. And when I realized that it didn't, it truly did not matter how bad my past was, that it was more about how I healed from it that gave me the authority to stand up and use my voice and create content and create and write books. It changed everything for me. And then now I'm like shouting it from the rooftops. I'm like, dude, did you know you could be totally ratchet and have a horrible past and still create beauty in this world? Surprise. You've created beauty. You continue to create it. You continue to use broken crayons and you've dedicated the book that you just wrote to Dylan. You've talked about your father and your mother. Eventually, when Dylan talks to her children, what do you hope that Dylan says? How do you hope Helen describes mom? Well, she already says this about me, but she's like, my mom is wild and crazy. I hope that she can always say that, that my mom's so funny and wild and crazy because, you know, oftentimes people ask like, you went through so much. You could have so much bitterness and unforgiveness. You could just be so angry with God, with the world, but you still have this smile on your face. You're still bopping around. And I, I want my daughter to know the depths of the pain that I walked through, but also to know that I walked out of it with a smile on my face, my head held high. And I hope that she knows that it wasn't because of how strong I was or am, but my willingness to be weak and to really admit the hard things. I, I hope that she grows up and says that to her friends and, oh God, I don't even want to talk about husband and kids. I don't want to talk about <laughs> You're not, you're not a granny yet. Let's enjoy the newborn. Just her friends. Before we get That's there, that's right. Saying. Just her friends, her cute yeah. little 12-year-old friends. We're going to shift gears in a moment to the Live Inspired 7, seven questions we ask all of our guests before we get to them. Final question for you, Miss Tony, is this. You, you mentioned that you hope your daughter Dylan sees this in you. For yeah. those who don't yet see it in themselves, whose mm. shoulders remain slumped, not from a place of humility, but from a place of brokenness, mm. who are feeling despair, who are struggling with their stories or the stories of them being told around them. Yeah. What's the encouragement you have for those of us right now just struggling? What's the yeah. advice or encouragement for us? Yeah, I think first and foremost, I just want to say it's okay to sit in the valleys. I, I think that 
we've heard my generation, I think the generation before as well, we've heard be strong, be strong, pick up your bootstraps and come on, let's go. I think some of us don't want perfection. I think we want the freedom to be in pain, the freedom to grieve, the freedom to be really sad about things. And so I would first and foremost say, it's okay to be in the valleys. I think hope rises from the dirt Mm. and be where you are right now. And also you don't have to stay there. You can call your way out. You have the strength. You have what it takes to get to mountains of hope. And I think your strength is going to come from embracing the really, really hard truths that are sometimes incredibly painful. And from that place, when you face it, when you name it, you'll start healing and hope will come again and you'll be okay. And that's it. Yeah. I think hope comes from the dirt. That is that's solid right there. So as we shift now from your story into the Live Inspired 7, the first question is, what's been the most impactful or the most influential, the best book you've ever read? Ooh, man, Soul of Shame, uh, Dr. Kurt Thompson. Goodness gracious. Talk so, about Soul of Shame, tell me about it. Oh my goodness. It's just our root core beliefs that really feed shame in our lives. I just feel like shame can just knock anybody down. I mean, we've seen leaders fall. We've seen marriages implode. We've seen all this stuff. And then we've also seen the shock and the aftermath of destruction in our marriages and our relationships. And we're like, oh my gosh, like, I'm so shocked. I didn't know you were battling with that. I didn't know you were going through that. I didn't know you had the porn addiction or the this or that. And it's because I believe people are hiding in shame, but when we can bring it to the light, we can free it and we can heal it. And so soul of shame, awesome book. Awesome. What, what is one positive characteristic or one awesome trait that young Tony possessed growing up in Houston, Texas, that you wish you modeled as brilliantly today? Oh, I do really wish that I saw the best in people. Little Tony. Oh my gosh. My friends used to call me a Teletubby because I was just like, Hey, everybody's my friend. Woo. Hug me. And now I'm so hesitant. So leery. So, I mean, there's, and there's wisdom in that, you know, but there's just really something about seeing the world from a beauty lens than, you know, a lens out of, out of ashes or darkness. And so I, I, I pray I get some of that back. And I think I have as I've healed, but I do pray that I get some more back. As you get that back and uh, as you eventually race out of your home with your child, both children, how about, and yeah. everything's out safely, but the house is on fire. The house where you live, you have an opportunity now to run in and grab one item, just one oh. thing. What's the one thing, Tony, you'd run in and save? Oh, man. I think I would try my best. I mean, this sounds really vain, okay? But it's fine. We're just going to live our best lives. I think I would try to save our marble jar. We have a something called a legacy jar. And it it's, it's a representation of the children's lives that they're with us. So your kids have 936 weeks with you until they're 18. Whew. And it's, I know, yeah, surprise, it hurts. Fast. It goes fast. The jar has 936 marbles that you take out one week by week, one by one, and we pray over them. And I don't know. I just, that's the one thing I just thought about. I'm like all the other stuff, whatever, but there's just something special to know that my daughter and my son, like I have them for 936 weeks. It's just a phase. Don't miss it. And I just feel, I could just see us like running with that marble jar and toe saying, I've got the kids and I've got their legacy in my hand. Mm. Oh, yeah. What do you do with the jar? The, the, the marbles you pull out, where do you put them then? You put them in a little bag so you don't see them. And it's like, you can't see them. And it's just like, they're gone. Bye. 
is like so sad, but it's also so beautiful. Well, you got about 924 for your son, but a lot I know. for your poor oh, yeah, daughter. I don't want to talk about how much, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> right. I'm not talking about anything with her getting older, you know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying. I have four and they're all, uh, th there's no. a lot less marbles in their jars. So I know exactly what you're saying. I don't know how old they are, John, but let me just tell you that my eight-year-old has 612 weeks left. So there you go. There you go. If, if you could sit on a bench with anyone living or deceased and have a long conversation on a gorgeous day, who yeah. do you want to sit next to? hundred percent. My grandmother, my mom's mom. Um, she was so incredibly profound and prophetic in so many ways and special. And my mom describes her all the time. And I just, I don't remember her. I, she's passed away when I was eight, when I was nine. And um, I just want to hear it. She had a near-death experience when she was a child. And she has this profound story about mm -hmm. dying and coming back to life. And I just want to hear that. I want to, I want to hear it. What's the best advice your grandmother or mm -hmm. anyone else in your life has ever given you? keep living. My dad told me, I actually have a tattooed on my side. There was a, a really dark space in my life where I did not want to live anymore. Their tattooed on my side were the words keep living. And my dad meant it as, you know, when all those fails, just keep living. Like if there's nothing else that you can do, if there's no more hope, just like stay alive. That helped me choose to stay alive in so many ways. That's what it meant for you then. What does it mean for you today? Mm, I, I think it kind of, it almost means that we don't just have to survive our lives. I've been like writing about this a little bit and it hasn't gone anywhere, but I've just been processing this idea of many of us are just surviving life. We're not thriving. We're just quite literally surviving. And I think that now this phrase says, yeah, we can keep living like, got it. That's the foundational truth. But I want to live a life of hope. I, I, I want to live a life of grit and joy. And I know that hurt and hope can coexist and we're going to experience pain in our lives, but I'm going to fight my hardest for joy and for hope. So yeah, it gives me that. What advice would you give yourself at age 20? If you could oh. go back in time and whisper a little bit of wisdom her way, what would you say? Oh my gosh, get out. Okay, <laughs> get out of that relationship, girl. Um, I, I honestly would probably say to her, hey, Tony, like you're enough. You're enough and you don't have to do anything else. You don't have to perform anymore. You don't have to keep showing up. You are enough, just who you are. You can be and not do. And I would just try my best to like get her to believe that. I would like really look her in the eyes and grab her shoulders and be like, seriously, seriously, girl, you are enough. You don't have to keep striving. Tony Collier, you are enough. And it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. <gasps> How would you like yours to read? Oh, she knew the kindness of God. That's it. She knew, and I've needed that. And I bet some other people need to hear that, that he's not this big old mean God, just shaking his little finger up there, mad at you for all that you've done. He's not the God at the end of the tunnel saying, come on, clean yourself up. I'll be down here waiting for you. He is the light that brings you through the tunnel. Mm. He's kind. Tony Collier, author, daughter, friend, spouse, survivor, healer, overcomer. You are enough. And I appreciate the time. I appreciate the work and the words and the impact that you are having on people today. Thank you. My friends, that is Tony Collier. My name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift. You are enough. Live inspired.
people in a marketplace that is packed with fear-mongering headlines and seeming doom around every single corner. I'm leaving the conversation today with Tony filled with hope that while the headwinds may be real, and they are, the best is yet to come, not only for us collectively, but for us individually. So many of what Tony shared today resonated with me. One of the things that deeply moved me was the advice her father gave her. Not everything he did was perfect. You heard that loud and clear. But he gave some pretty good advice. Here it is. Tony, keep living. Keep living. I love how that message continues to evolve. Even during a season of despair, when she was questioning whether or not she should take her own life, Tony leaned into that advice. Keep living. Hope you all lean into it today. Keep living. Today, Tony's leaning into those same words, but instead of just surviving, she's seeking to thrive and live a life full of hope, joy, of peace, and vibrancy. It reminded me the conversation today of a different conversation with a different guest from a bit different part of the world with a different story with an equally powerful message. I'm referring to my friend Nick V. Unbelievable human being, one of my favorite leaders of all time. After being born without arms or legs, Nick faced tremendous obstacles, including helplessness and isolation, until he discovered purpose. As a New York Times bestselling author, international speaker, and an ambassador of hope, my brother Nick reminds each of us that we can rise above adversity, overcome every disability, and live a life without limits. It's one of my favorite conversations of all time because Nick is one of my favorite humans of all time. If you want to learn more about our conversation, check it out. It's found at episode 254. It's been a while, but it's worth going back to. 254. If you can't find it there, cruise on over to my website, johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast, and you can certainly find it right there. Episode 254. So I want to thank you all for checking out today's episode with Tony, for checking out Nick's when you get a, a moment to do exactly that, for being part of our Live Inspired podcast community. We don't take you for granted. We are profoundly grateful for you, for your downloads, for your listens, for your questions, for your feedback, for you rating us online, in particular when it's positive, people for you promoting us to your friends, to your family, to your coworkers in a marketplace with so much desperate isolation and loneliness and despair. You come forward not only living these messages, but reminding your community that they can too. That's powerful. You make a difference and your best is yet to come. So friends, family, Live Inspire community for this time. And until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. Keep living and live inspired. Keely Companies, they are all about the Keelyian culture, and they know people are the most important asset. Recently, Keely Companies entered a new chapter of their organization and underwent an entire corporate rebrand, driven by the same mission and core values. Keely Companies is a family-owned enterprise of companies across the country. They act as your single source for investment, development, management, construction, and restoration. They are still the same Keeley you know and you love, just with a fresh, streamlined look and new additions to the family. Who knows? And maybe you'll see the Keeley K around your time. And when you do, 
Go on in, shake their hand, and tell them John O'Leary sent you. My friends, to learn more about the work they do and where they are, visit them online at keelycompanies.com.